All right, welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Halper. I'm not in a good way right now. That sounds like some old-fashioned expression for being pregnant or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I just had to drive three hours just to do this show because New Jersey's broken. This is like... Even more than usual. Well, no, it's just literally New Jersey's off. So we had some kind of storm that I guess we don't really hear about these things anymore because we're so in the bubble anyway. I guess people knew this was coming. I don't know. But suddenly trees were flying everywhere and there's power outages throughout the entire state. The the company doesn't have any clue when uh, the state's going to be back on. And there's no there's not even any cell service in half the state. So uh, I just had to hop into a car and drive to another undisclosed location in a, a nearby state. Right. Just to uh, just to meet, meet our obligations to you, yeah. the useful idiots listener. On the plus side, we have a good show. We have a really good mm-hmm. show because we have we have Thomas Frank, longtime uh, friend friend to both of us. There's his book, The yeah, People, People Know, Know, a brief history of anti-populism. We we've been kind of waiting to do this show for a while because uh, we knew this book was coming and we we had read it and um, you know been in touch with him and. Uh, Really, really uh, outstanding conversation. So that's coming. All right. Well, I guess we should just plunge right into it, right? So four food groups, Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? Or Okay. So shout out to friend of the show, former guest Aaron Mate, uh, who tweeted out a clip of Bill Clinton speaking at John Lewis's uh, funeral. Dan, if we could just play the video in that tweet. And I say there were two or three years there where the movement went a little bit too far towards Stokely, but in the end, John Lewis prevailed. Bill Clinton, I know that you were once called the first black president. He also, you know, played um, saxophone on, uh, was it Arsenio Hall? But he is not indeed in fact a black person not that you have to be a black person to talk about this stuff but it's definitely a little bit like problematic for bill clinton of all people to i think make these kind of uh proclamations but look but part of bill clinton's brand was triangulating putting the black voter in his or her place right it's and true that, yeah that that was that was uh and we can we're going to talk about this ironically because this right. dovetails with the whole thomas frank thing yeah but the wider strategic decision of the Democratic Party that led to Bill Clinton's oft-celebrated 1992 victory and had a lot to do with stealing away the Southern strategy. Right. Uh, and the funny thing is they, they still think that it's uh, a, a thing within the Democratic Party that they, they should be lionized for, even though the party has, has long since moved on from that as a strategy, as a thing they should do, as a, you know, I mean, her, his own wife actually moved away from it in 2016. So odd that he would pull that you out. I mean, when she's talking about the white working class voters? Well, she, she, Hillary Clinton ran with, with Bill Clinton's strategy in 2008. And, oh, right. Sorry. She, yeah. That's, well, that was the white working class voters. Yeah. Yeah. And when she was like, oh, I'm the, I'm the granddaughter of a lace factory right. worker and, you know, white working class book from wins pennsylvania and all that right then in 2016 if you remember at the beginning of the campaign they they leaked all these stories about how we'd like to run that campaign uh but it's not going to work so we're going to do the the demographic campaign 
And then they kind of they, they use the same tactics. They this time they triangulated against Bernie, right? Right, instead of Sister Soldier, right? And so anyway, Bill Clinton is he's just he's progressed into the rambling at people's funerals yeah, and not exactly, realizing yeah. that that he's an appropriate stage yeah. of his political career which yeah is- he's been there for a few years it is true he doesn't have that he used to be quite poised um and now i mean it's the same politics and same entitlement um but it now doesn't have the veneer of of kind of it doesn't it no longer has his polish it just has like you said rambling old man with the with the pointing finger he was always a pretty rageful dude i think mm. uh and it just it was very very hidden yeah. Uh, skillfully. Uh, I mean, he was an he was an angry, angry politician. And he was I think that came out in a lot of the decisions that he made in the in the 90s. You know, he was pretty hardcore, ruthless politician. And that was part of what got him elected, I think, actually, is he, he made some pretty brutal decisions to throw over the sacred cows of the party uh, over overboard and. He was just always an angry guy. Mm. Uh, it was it was very under the surface, but anyway, it's now out all the time. I mean, he he, he we saw it in 2016. If you remember, he was lecturing somebody. Yeah. What's it, was it Black Lives Black Matter? Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And it's just that's that's a big part of his personality. And then, and then additionally, in the in the same speech at John Lewis's funeral. Yeah, I was going to play that <laughs> one too. Yeah. Can we show oh, that yeah, other clip? Yeah. Is it uh, where he thanks Jim Clyburn? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Can we play that is. other other one, please? Oh my God. Thank President and Mrs. Bush, President Obama, Speaker Pelosi, thank you, and Representative Hoyer and Representative Clyburn, who I really thank for with the stroke of a hand ending an intra-family fight within our party. Proving that peace is needed by everyone. So I love, first of all, do you think that he was planning to say that? Or was that, I feel like if we look at his face, he was like, I'm just going to go there. Like, I don't yeah. think it was in his speech, right? I don't what do you think, think so. He think also so. seems kind of, kind of blasted. Don't yeah, you think? I was going to say the same thing. Right? Can like, we watch that once more, Dan? Sorry. Yeah, it's like 12 gummies, I think. 12 gummies, yeah. <laughs> oh, I really want a gummy bear now. The, the eyes are barely open. I know, and definitely after he says it, there's something. Who I really thank for with the stroke of a hand ending oh my God. an intra-family fight within our party. <laughs> Proving that peace is needed by everyone. Again, it's like you and I have actually disagreed on this a little bit, Matt, where for you it was like, well, this isn't even the moderate consolidation that you and I have talked about in the past. Um, And I don't know how much the Clyburn endorsement, uh, how decisive it was. Uh, You probably have more insight into that than I do as someone who's been. I think it probably mattered a lot, but I I mean, I wasn't there. But it's like you and I have disagreed kind of, although we basically agree on the way that we frame or see the moderate consolidation. I guess for me, it's terrible, but, and I, I guess I was outraged and you were kind of like, duh, of course they would do this. But I think part of it is that his, the lack of, like you don't, that's like saying the quiet part aloud a little bit. Even though he's not part of the moderate consolidation, it's still part of the, 
there's something first of all it's inappropriate i think to mention at a at a funeral because it's like you're talking about primary politics primary election politics well also he's speaking from the the tone of somebody who still thinks he's the leader of the party right that's also true which is yes. which a little bit delusional yeah i mean there's a lot of pharmaceutical delusion going on yeah. in that clip i think even barack obama would struggle to have to be the the sole owner of the mantle of the the conscience of the democratic party right now and then the clintons are significantly behind even obama right so uh, that was a that was a weird moment. Yeah, in terms of what you and I disagree on, I just thought you know having Klobuchar and Buttigieg bounced from the race just made sense. It's right. what and it, that's not dirty pool. That's just politics. If Bernie right. if Bernie had more enough votes to to win a one on one race, then he he would have won it. They were self sabotaging up until that moment. Bernie was going to win as long as they kept doing the stupid thing and running a million candidates against him. Uh, and if, you know, if he had had to run a one-on-one -on -one campaign the whole way through it, you know, it might've turned out differently, but certainly, certainly by the end, the only way he was going to win is if they continued to keep too many people in the race, which, which incidentally is what the Republicans did uh, to let Trump win. Anyway, Bill anyway. Clinton is, is nuts. Terrible. Uh, that could have been, our, isn't that weird? And isn't that terrible? And Democrats suck. And basically Republicans suck because, you know, and a stone moment. And a stone moment. And this, a stone. Okay, you guys, thank you so much for watching Useful Idiots. That's our show. See you next That's week. That's our show. See you next yeah. week. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I should also say that the Democrats are terrible and they voted against a uh, an attempt to uh, an amendment that would have taken corruption out of the party platform and, and banned lobbyists from serving on the platform committee. So there's some serious things besides just uh, the Clinton stuff. For Republicans suck. Uh, I just got something short. It's just Randy Quaid, Randy Quaid too close. Uh, if we could see Randy Quaid talking about the latest developments in the Michael Flynn case. Dan, let's go to the videotape. Sally Yates has zero credibility. <laughs> she was part of the greatest political crime of the century. And Obama Biden knew everything. Sally Yates leaked General Flynn's conversation. That's good under oath. <laughs> the Republicans should start playing the Democrats game. <laughs> First of all, Dennis Quaid needs to make a counter video. Dennis Quaid, yeah. His brother, yeah. yeah. Probably should, yeah. Should be Quaid versus Quaid. That would be a yeah. great... If we had that as the general election, that would be pretty yeah. funny. It would, be, it would be like Game of Thrones when you can have people fight for you, you know, yeah. at your trial. So instead of Trump versus Biden, it could be Quaid versus Quaid. Right, at the... it would be Randy, obviously, it would be Trump, and then right. Dennis would be Biden. I assume yeah. Biden's uh, Dennis is a dem. What is that? What is he trying to accomplish with that? That's just weird for everyone. I mean, I, the, the embarrassing thing for me is that I, I, I actually kind of sort of agree that the I don't think that Obama Biden knew everything and all that stuff. But I do agree that there was a the Flynn leak was a pretty messed up thing and that right. it has to be investigated and all that. What is it with the pro Trump celebrity? Is there like a particular thing that you have to be in order to be a pro Trump celebrity? Like there aren't many. Well, who, like, who are who are there? Gary Busey, I guess, is another oh one. Right. God. Scott Bayo. Scott Bayo, Gary Busey. Yeah, I feel like 
five of them are basically the same person, right? Like Gary Busey and Ted Nugent, Ted Nugent, and and Randy Quaid. Randy Quaid, yeah. And uh, Kid have Rock. They ever been, have they ever been seen in the same room at the same time? No, I mean they've done different work, I guess. You ever seen the movie Parents with Randy Quaid? I don't think so. One of the great movies of all time. One of the great lines of all time. What is it? You eat people. What is it? Is it about... that's, that, that's the climax of the movie, where a little kid says you eat people. Um, I don't know what to say about uh, that, except there's a lot going on with the Russiagate stuff, by the way. And there, there is suddenly a lot of talk in Washington that Durham is going to punt this thing until after the election, which has, uh, I think, a lot of the Republicans very pissed off. You know, anyway, if that were to happen, that would, I think you would have a lot more things, things like this coming out on the internet. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, maybe that, maybe this is one of the early warning signs of Republican derangement syndrome over, over that uh, eventuality if they end up not releasing or doing anything. What do we have for, uh, isn't that? Uh, so for, isn't that weird? We have another animal story. I'll, I'll just read from the actual article, which is from San Luis Obispo. Well, I'll read the headline, which is very intriguing. It says, who is putting Trump 2020 stickers on bears in North Carolina? 5,000 reward offered. $5,000 reward is being offered in hopes of finding the culprit responsible for allegedly putting Donald Trump 2020 campaign stickers on bears in Western North Carolina. Two bears with Trump 2020 campaign stickers on their tracking collars have been reported in the Asheville area, according to the bear advocacy group Help Asheville Bears or HAB. Bears are not billboards, the organization said in a July 31 Facebook post. <laughs> Whoever put these political stickers on these bears is cruel and heartless. Hab and our followers hope to stop and expose you. Uh, the organization says it learned of the stickers after witnesses saw the bears outside homes and took photos. Hab officials said their investigation is not intended to be critical of a specific candidate or a campaign. However, the organization says it does not approve of researchers putting tracking collars on bears. Any sticker is bad, and now it's being done twice. Collars and tags are bad, too. People just love politics more than animals. Hab is offering a $5,000 reward for information on the persons responsible for putting this political sticker on this beautiful bear who has already been trapped, tranquilized, and collared unnecessarily. This bear must wear the burdensome collar now with the sticker and bolts <laughs> in its ears for worthless data. So do we think the scientist is the same person who put the sticker on there? We, we should just blame it on Randy Quaid, don't you think? It probably was him, yeah. So somebody is running around putting Trump stickers on bears. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to vote in favor of whoever is doing that. Really? I, it's a gutsy thing. It is. It's kind of like a Trump move. Biden like, could never get someone to do that. Yeah, who's gonna put? Who's gonna go put Biden stickers on a bear? Unless the bear were dead <laughs> or tranquilized. Uh, they, they, I think the most we could expect is a is a Biden sticker on a on a dead on like a bear rug. Right. Yeah. Or yeah, an expiring squirrel. Yeah. But definitely not a full grown live like bear. No. Potentially deadly bear. Yeah. No. Or, you know what? We should suggest that. Hey, if you really love Biden, prove it to us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Put your money where your mouth is. Put your money where your mouth is. Go out and stick that Biden on a bear. Or yeah. a worse animal. Like what's a, what's, or a shark, right? 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely, if you, yeah. If you can get a Biden sticker on a shark and get a photo of it in the wild, I don't know. There's some kind of serious compensation would have to be involved for that kind of a picture, don't you think? Yes. What What could it be? They can be a guest on the show? That's not good enough. It would have to be something pretty intense. Co-host. Like a Co-host. weekend at Bellagio. <laughs> but, but you really have to do it. It can't be like digitized or something like that. You actually right. have to get in the water and put that sticker on, on the shark's face. Uh, so for isn't that terrible from the, uh, the publication that's really the, the heart and soul of all weird news in the world, the mirror weird and terrible. Yeah. Weird and terrible. Uh, headline pretty much says it all man's romantic marriage proposal goes up in flames when 100 candles set flat on fire. Here's the lead. A loved up man's attempts at a romantic marriage proposal went horribly wrong when he accidentally set fire to his Sheffield flat. In a series of tweets, uh, South Yorkshire Fire described the incident in the hopes of teaching, quote, an important lesson around candle use. (laughs) Photos show a large amount of scorched tea light candles in a room completely gutted by fire after, quote, the romantic proposal that didn't quite go by plan. Three crews were mobilized on Monday night following reports of the fire, and the firefighters dealt with it quickly as ever, blah, blah, blah. Basically, Dude tried to be romantic in in a proposal and lit a whole bunch of candles that were supposed to say, I think, marry me and some other things, but instead basically destroyed the apartment uh, and burned the place down. And here's the part of the story that bothers me, because this is all, this is pretty much always the ending of these stories. On the bright side, no one was injured, and the man's girlfriend did, in the end, say yes. So these... Uh, marriage proposal gone wrong stories they never end in, in the other person saying you know you know what uh this is probably a harbinger of something bad to come right right i mean do you think that's a happy i guess i guess that's a happy ending yeah i mean i don't think this is all that terrible then i mean you know if, if he had killed 14 people then, then then that's really more of a terrible story i i don't know i might be overreacted putting this one on yeah but. i mean well, we have another, you know, I mean, I, I don't know why I didn't just from the beginning give this one out. Man has penis grown on his arm after losing mm. genitalia to sepsis. I should have just given you that one. Matt Look, was running saw, behind I, because, oh, you saw that? I saw the, the, the penis on arm story. And I, I I just don't know that I want to do that. I just don't know if I want to talk about that. I don't yeah. know. Do you want to talk about it? I feel like I have to. All right. Man has penis grown on his arm after losing genitalia to sepsis. So that's an isn't that terrible built in there already. But you laughed so hard at the at the leech inside a man's penis. So I thought, yeah, no, this 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 is this is more horrible to me. Plus, the arm thing doesn't really solve the. It doesn't make a happy ending for. No pun intended. Well, I just want to read this subhead. Okay, (laughs) so to speak. Yeah, I know. I should. Yeah. When I saw my penis, when I saw my penis go black, I was beside myself. <laughs> that is really terrible. It's but, oh my god! I'm not going to laugh at that. And he, the 44 year old man, has become the first to have a new bionic penis grafted onto his arm. A mechanic from Norfolk was due to have the new appendage attached to his genital area in 2018, but a series of delays resulted in him living with the genitalia on his arm for the past four years. Mr. McDonald said he was elated to have, quote, a chance at a new start and hoped it would boost his self-confidence, as well as enable him to do simple things like using the loo. 
The procedure involved taking a flap of skin containing blood vessels and nerves from Mr. McDonald's left arm and rolling it into a phallic shape. The surgeons then created a urethra and inserted two tubes connected to a pump that would allow Mr. McDonald to achieve a mechanical erection. Okay, all right, yeah. This is like getting a thousand paper cuts on my tongue or something. Like, I, I, I can't... It fell off onto the floor. And then what? He scooped it up and put it on his arm? I knew down deep it was gone and I was going to lose it. Then one day it just dropped off to the floor. Where was he? I mean, he must have had something else that was a more pressing emergency that he had. Well, to that's what I'm saying. Like, okay, <laughs> I knew deep down, I knew deep down it was gone. I was going to lose it. Then one day it just dropped off onto the floor. For two years after losing his penis, Mr. McDonald said his life really fell apart until he was referred to Professor. Ralph, when the time came to reattach the penis to his groin area, he was unwell and the surgery had to be postponed. He missed several appointments due to scheduling issues, and the operation was postponed again until April this year. However, the coronavirus prevented him from getting the surgery done once again. What do you mean? Who has scheduling issues when they're trying to get their penis reattached? Again, he must have had something else that was more important going on. Maybe the draft was on TV. I don't know. Oh, I mean, my God. Anyway, that, that is terrible. That is genuinely terrible. That That is compared to burning your house down and having her still say yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I, that's actually almost a funny story. Like, you know, you could die down on that years later. You know, your mom, yes, your you're mom right. and I, we, we, when we, before we got married, you know, I actually, I burned the house down and nearly killed us. But she said it's, yes. Anyway. Yeah, you're right. It's like a happy, yeah, it's actually a, a cute story, especially, com- I feel like we're never, ever going to be able to do and isn't that terrible again, because nothing will match septic penis relocation. Right. Yeah. I, 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 I when my penis turned black, I was beside myself. And I was really hard for me to get to the, it was really hard for me to balance my schedule. To get to the reattachment <laughs> surgery, he needed he needed help from Siri. Yeah, right? seriously, <laughs> Siri, when can I have my penis reattached? He was bad at saving things in his calendar. All right. Yeah, so we have a stone moment. Um, it uh, we, it's been a while since we brought you one of those. Uh, so if we could just go down to the uh to that videotape and and watch this interaction between Biden and a reporter. Mr. Vice President, your opponent in this election, President Trump, has made your mental state a campaign topic. And when asked in June if you'd been tested um, for cognitive decline, you've responded that you're constantly tested in, in, in effect because you're in situations like this on the campaign trail. But please clarify specifically, have you taken a cognitive no, test? No, I haven't taken a test. Why the hell would I take a test? Come on, man. That's like saying you, before you got in this program, if you take a test where you're taking cocaine or not, what do you think, huh? Are, are you a junkie? What do you say to <laughs> President Trump, who brags about his test and makes your mental state an issue for voters? Well, if he can't figure out the difference between an elephant and a lion, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Did you watch that? Look, come on, man. I, I, I know you're trying to goad me, but I mean... I'm so forward looking to have an opportunity to sit with the president or stand with the president in debates. There can be plenty of time. And by the way, as I joke with him, you know, it, I, I shouldn't say it. I'm going to say something I don't I, I probably shouldn't say. Anyway, I am uh, I am very willing to let the American public judge my physical and mental fil- my physical as well as my mental fil- fitness. And uh, to, uh, you know, to make a judgment about 
who I am. Forward, I'm very forward looking. Forward looking. That is so okay. That was a masterpiece. I'm gonna vote for him. I know, like it looks like it's edited, but it's not. That's what I forgot to say at the beginning of this show, and I got this because I got distracted by this whole storm thing. Is yeah. that I've decided I'm looking forward to the Biden presidency. I just can't believe how like, and I, I think about cocaine. Oh my God! He asked him if he's a junkie. Yeah, was was that a was that a uh, what was he trying to get at there? I mean, with Biden, there are just so many different possibilities. But it was a little problematic. Let's just say. Yeah. I mean, very much so. But that's kind of his lane. I'm surprised he didn't tell him if you're really black, you wouldn't ask me that question. Right. He, he was doing fine for a minute there. Like, I, you know, he can't tell the difference between an elf and a lion. And then. And then it just fell apart. Like, I'm really forward looking <laughs> to the opportunity to stand or sit. Yeah. With the. And then my mental so that fit. The American, the American public can judge my. <laughs> <laughs> It's just brilliant. Yeah. It's so good. It's so right? good. He should pretend that he's... You know what's funny is that's the type of thing that if Trump did, he would pretend he was joking. Right. This is amazing. I mean, this, 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 this presidential election is... It's just an awesome comedy. How many leg hairs, guys? Oh, yeah. How many leg hairs? Good question. That's How many golden leg, leg hairs? hairs? Way up from here. Two golden yeah. leg hairs way up. Yeah. That was that was fantastic. That's actually one of... That's one of his best... I agree. Because it's got the whole panoply of like Bidenisms in it. Yeah. It's got it's got forgetting where you are in the middle of a sentence. It's got inappropriate. Uh, it's got pugnacious. Racially insensitive. Racially insensitive, maybe. We definitely be, opens be... it up to to that. Let's right. say it definitely leaves itself vulnerable to that. Lack the condescending, angry the angry laughter. The angry laughter. And and then the complete car wreck of trying to yeah. verbalize something that he, he shouldn't have verbalized anyway. And uh, the I'm going to stop myself right there. I'm going to stop myself right there before I say the something that's really cancelable. I'm going to yeah. stop myself right there before I say that I'm a man. Yeah, yeah. Or whatever. So, yeah. so that the, um, the American people can judge my. <laughs> <laughs> It's actually worse than that. If he had done that, that would have been more understandable. Like, this is worse because it's almost, it's like that. I've been, oh, he just had a moment. But this is actually like, it's just all scrambled. All right. Just quickly, uh, we, we've got a great discussion coming up with um, Thomas Frank, which is going to touch on some media subjects. But a couple of interesting things happened this week. Uh, one of them being that a producer from MSNBC named um, Ariana Picari quit right and submitted a resignation letter and it was interesting on a number of levels because it confirmed a number of things that we've talked about a lot in the show so let's let's find let's find the actual quote because i think it was pretty amazing so in leaving this producer ariana Picari talked about how i mean her main criticism was essentially that the news division had stop making decisions about what they, what content to put on based on whether or not they had news value. And the quote, she quotes one of her colleagues uh, saying this thing, which I thought was amazing. Um, Our viewers don't really consider us the news. They come to us for comfort. And again, this is something I, I wrote about before, which is, 
which is that and, and I think a lot of people don't realize if you're not watching, you're not in the business, which is that this is a commercial consumer news business and we're trying to get the most people po uh, possible to watch the program and the strategy in this age of a gazillion channels as opposed to what it used to be a million years ago when there were just three is we have to basically suck up and pander to the audience as much as possible so we we don't challenge the audience we find things that we know is going to rile them up about some other group that they don't like or is going to re reinforce their prejudices about something else and i feel bad for uh ariana because i think this unfortunately was taken by a lot of sort of right-wing types yeah as as evidence that oh look the evil liberals at msnbc whereas that's actually not it she's talking about something that's a, a, a an industry-wide issue and the politics are actually kind of incidental like it's exactly the same thing that goes on in fox right except it's just the politics are different it's like a different flavor of candy right Anyway, I thought, I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, we, obviously, we would love to talk to her sometime, but but that's. I think we're we're going to start seeing more and more people leave the business because of this, because it's gotten so bad, uh, and it's it's something people talk about. It's interesting. So she was actually working for the Last Word with Lawrence mm -hmm. uh, O'Donnell, and she says that it's uh it's gotten worse. The longer I was at MSNBC, the more I saw such choices, which is based on you know, ratings. Yeah. Well, what she's saying is every time, every time you make a decision about what to put on, you're making a calculation about how, how is this going to rate? So, and, and this is something that has actually a lot less to do with politics than people think. Like you might have something you just think is important randomly, right? Like, I don't know. It might have something to do with climate change or, uh the fed or something like that something that's boring but important and and you won't put it on the air and it won't even be political right it, or or it'll be political in a, in a direction that indicts everybody and you won't put that on the air in favor of something that is hyper partisan uh and has you know villains and heroes right for your audience to root for and root against because those kinds of stories sell more and they, they're more circulatable, they're more viral. She also said something I think really echoes something that you point out a lot. She writes, any discussion about the election usually focuses on Donald Trump, not Joe Biden, a repeat offense from 2016. Trump smothers out all of their coverage. Also important is to ensure citizens can vote by mail this year, but I've watched that topic get ignored or killed numerous times, which is like, really i think an important point and, and i mean this is something i talk about a lot which is like criticizing trump for the right reasons like right. that's a story that deserves coverage it's huge it's not that sexy i've seen chris chris hayes talk about it but it's a huge nerdy story that actually because it's kind of nerdy requires that much more coverage i think um mm -hmm. and you know the russia stuff or i was actually thinking that like that if, if if Trump had the equivalent statement of Biden, it would have been, I mean, all over the place. This is a ratings issue. And what what they what their calculation is, Donald Trump stories about how shitty Donald Trump is right. rate. And so we're going to do as many of those as we can. And we just what's what's the upside to doing stories about how 
fucked up Biden is. Right. Do you think that they actually are making it so that, like, do you think they want, I mean, some of these, I always think that a lot of politicians or consultants would rather have, wanted to have Trump over Bernie. Do you think any, like Rachel Maddow, she sincerely would rather Biden, right? You just think that there's a, like, what do you, what goes on in her head, do you think? So anybody who's reached the stage of making $10 million at, at a cable news operation is going to be the kind of person who is going to recoil from Bernie Sanders for all the reasons that we're going to talk right. about with Thomas Frank, which is that Sanders doesn't check any of the boxes of the kind of politician uh, that establishment bureaucracies like. He is a he's a populist in all in all the classic sense, right? His, his all of his power comes from voter organization, small donations. He doesn't owe. Uh, his political career to anybody. So that person, that kind of politician, historically has always been described in the same way. Uh, it's the voters are emotion driven. Right. They, you know, and we're going to get into this with yeah. Tom, but it's just the equal and opposite of Trump. I hate that. It's like, which is a big part of what Tom is saying, which is that populism is not this right wing, left wing, both sidesism thing. Right. On and also that the propaganda response is identical no matter who it is. Yeah. Right. And he and he's going to get into it. Like, in other words, what we saw with Trump, that he's, uh, you know, that his, his voters are stupid, emotion driven, that he's susceptible to foreign influence. He doesn't uh, understand uh, or have the ability to implement the policy proposals uh, right. that, that he's supporting. He doesn't respect the expertise. Right of uh policymakers those are all the same criticisms that that they they sent oh and obviously the bigotry misogyny yeah. anti-pluralism there's right. a long history of this and it's all the same stuff they threw at bernie too and it right. worked so but do you anyway. think a mad like maddow would rather have she definitely obviously wanted hillary over bernie and biden over bernie but do you think that she cares more about the ratings than she does about like getting Trump out of office. So I think when, when you get to that level of the news business, it, there's not a whole lot of like deep um, calculation that goes on. It's really a lot of unconscious decision making that, you know, it, by the time you're a 55 or, or a 60 year old producer in cable television, you just kind of are able to smell what kind of a story is the one that you like and what kind of the story is the one that you don't like. And Bernie Sanders immediately strikes everybody who works in the news business as not their type, you know, in the same way that Dennis Kucinich didn't. Right. And they just recoiled. It's, it's, it's unconscious. I'm challenging. So two things. One is unless Ariana comes on this show, I'm just going to have to believe that she really is a Fox News lover. So uh, she has I'm giving her a chance to prove herself. Um, I will you're, you're going to you're going to slander her. No, I'm, I'll just say her absence will leave it open the possibility. I see. I'm kind of yang. If there's an Ariana gang, the way there's a Yang gang, I'm trying to, you know, apply the pressure. So uh, so that happened. That was interesting. Will be I think it's going to be discussed more in the media world. Um, and then we, we got Thomas Frank coming up. So Thomas Frank has this new book out called The People Know. And he's been writing this for a while. And I think there's some backstory that people need to understand about him. That, and uh, we, we get, into the, get into this a little bit with the interview. But uh, 
basically, he was one of the few people, along with another friend of the show, Michael Moore, who was really plugged into the idea that, that Trump was a very dangerous uh, person, or, or like early, yeah, early in in the 2016 campaign. He had he had a book come out called "Listen, Liberal." that was full of all these warnings for basically for the left-leaning media about why you know somebody like that might have a lot of appeal and it was it, it rehashed some of the themes from his book what's the matter with kansas that was a huge hit in 2004 and people just i don't know do you remember this like people didn't want to hear it as much in 2016 they were like yeah whatever i mean that makes total sense right because it's the same thing that she's talking about ariana like they didn't want to hear the bad news well because they didn't they wanted to hear the bad news about so he got tons of bookings speaking of of the msnbc thing like he got tons of uh media attention when he wrote what's the matter with kansas because that vilified not vilified that diagnosed what the republicans were doing and to to some extent what the democrats were doing but really that was about looking at how how the premise is kind of like how are republicans able to screw over people right and part of that was yeah because the democrats fail but but it really was the premise of it was as you said in your in a piece you wrote substack it's like part of the premise was why are they voting against their own best interests and the liberals like that idea Right. Right. The, the, and the beginning of the book talks about how basically and beginning of what's the matter with Kansas says, you know, basically, Republican voters are responding to what, what he called the great backlash, which was this feeling of being abandoned. Middle America felt abandoned on social issues by uh, liberal politics, and they felt like kind of belittled and uh, condescended to about a lot of a lot of things, particularly about religion. And then, you know, there were always these like caricatures of small town America that like, you know, people like me were very guilty of, of doing. And, and so that book was hugely popular because, because for a lot of people in the sort of lefty media world, it was like, oh, well, this is why they're not, you know, all these people are voting for Bush and they're not voting. It's why they're voting against their own interests. But actually, if you got to the end of the book, it's got this vicious thing in there that basically says this is also happening because the Democrats made this terrible decision in the 80s and 90s to consciously abandon the economic issues that are important to these people. You know, they stood by and watched as all these unionized jobs left right. the country. And so that accelerated this process. And he doubled down on that a lot and listen liberal, which right. came and out in 2016. Right. It's listen, liberal, whatever happened to the party of the people. Right. So that so it is really interesting because it really is literally it's like the two opposite sides of the coin. Listen, liberal or whatever happened to the party of the people versus what's the matter with Kansas? How conservatives won the heart of America. So on in one case, it's like very much putting it on the like, what did conservatives do to be able to get them? And the other one, it's actually saying what happened to the Democrats? So he right. didn't get any love for that one at no, all and and a lot of people when it, when the book came out it came out in like may of 2016 at a time when all the polls said right. hillary's gonna destroy this you know trump is destroying the republican party uh whatever this diagnosis is is not going to be ter- ter- terribly relevant going forward but then it turned out of course that he was he was right 
And instead of like going back and saying, gee, we, sh we should rebook that guy because he, he called this, uh, it was like people were, were pissed at him for yeah. doing that, you know? And so, so this book, this, this, this new book that people know is really about the kind of propaganda response toward politicians, that both of the Trump type and of the Bernie type, uh, and how... Uh, and, and how furious it is. And I think that's, you know, the subtext of it is that, you know, he, he experienced this a little bit personally because nobody wanted to hear what he was saying or what anybody was saying about why Trump was succeeding. The other interesting thing about Tom's career, and, I, and I've talked with him about this because this sort of runs parallel to something that happened with me too, which is that, you know, when, when we came up in the media, there was a tradition always of the the working class columnist. Basically, every newspaper, big newspaper in the country, had a person who was like right. Mike Royko or Jimmy Breslin. Probably heard of Mike Barnacle, yeah. and uh, who ended up on MSNBC. The sort of tough talking columnist who you know who would write a column about what construction workers or cops or uh, prisoners or whatever we're talking about that week and it was it was usually a person who kind of uh wrote in the language of an actual working class person that was that was what made these columns successful and in the 80s and 90s they started to kind of phase that person out they just disappeared from newspapers and in their place they started to hire all these kind of professional class writers who if they wrote about the working class they did it from the point of view of being educated um that you know they, they wrote in the style of like upper class writers and they were sort of more professorial they didn't they didn't write in the vernacular right so basically like people like thomas frank and even me to me to some extent you, you still had like the kind of working class point of view represented in in the press, but it was no longer somebody who actually sounded like that in the media. And so the, the, the interesting thing about what's the matter with Kansas was that like, that was a book that people were, when people were like, wow, what's going on with conservatives? Why are, why are they voting for uh, George Bush? Like there was nobody left in the media right. who could, who could plausibly, you could pl plausibly say was like a working class famous working class writer, you know what I'm saying? Who, who, was yes. now, who was now explaining this to people. And so instead, they, they, the, the, the new person was somebody like Thomas Frank, who is great. Let me, like, in other words, he's a terrific writer, but now they don't even want to hear that. Right. You see what I'm saying? So it's like a progression, which I think is, they're kind of just gradually phasing out that whole point of view from media. Anyway, really interesting stuff. Tom's book is really, it's really good read. It's uh, very well researched. It's got a bit of like a flair of like a forbidden topic, which makes it kind of a, a fun read because you just won't, you, you just won't read a lot of these, these points of view uh, in, in popular media. So it's, it's a cool thing. Yeah, and he's a big history nerd. So I actually, one of my favorite parts of it was like the, the linguist tracing kind of the, the history of the, of the term. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's what that's what inspired him to do the book. Yeah, is that people kept using this word populist, 
as, right. as if there wasn't a specific political movement that had that name. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Which had to drive him crazy because, you know, if you if you go back and read What's the Matter with Kansas, there's a there's a section in there about his love of the populist movement. Right. And so I actually I wanted to ask him what the right word is for the kind of because there is for better or worse, there is a right wing thing that's been called populist and you can see the overlap. But it's not like what what like a Pat Buchanan type. Well, uh, protectionist. What are they They're. I think I think there is such a thing as a right wing populist. I just the if you ask Tom, I think what he would say and he says this in the book is that he never, he never thought that Trump was genuine about any of those things. He has a lot to say about all of this. Yeah, does, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. So yeah. without further ado, let's let's talk to Thomas Frank. Yeah. How are you guys? Good, you? Good, how are you? I am so good. Really? Because you're going on vacation soon? Is that why? I'm leaving tomorrow. And uh, today I got up at 7 and I got on my bike and I rode this the whole circumnavigation of this beautiful suburb where I am hiding out in kansas city nice this is like the best place in the world to be in quarantine there's nobody comes near you there's no cars on the streets it's this beautiful suburb i've always made fun of it in all my writing i you know i make fun of the place i grew up but i see its charm now excellent by the way did you see the conventions are all canceled i think of you because we i met you at the i know convention in denver i know i was all set to go um, they're all canceled, so it's crazy, isn't it? I don't know what I'm going to write about. <laughs> I, you know, I remember, I remember sitting with you, and that was when they were they had the free speech zones. Yeah, at, 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 at Obama's <laughs> convention, and we were talking about how ridiculous that was because they they had these very arcane rules for where you could go, where the eight people who were protesting could go. They had a cage. Uh, it was like a cage. Yeah, yeah, it was you a cage. Go in the cage and act like a, you know, act like a zoo animal if you want. Yeah, they were massively outnumbered by press. I remember that too. So my favorite, well, maybe not my favorite, but one of my favorite convention stories was at the '96 Democratic convention. It was in Chicago, and I was there as I always am for this French newspaper. And I had this French uh, editor was with me, and they had a food tent where they're at a certain time of day, they brought out food for the press and it consisted of Chicago style pizza, you know, those really thick mm-hmm. pizzas and, and um, cheesecake. And the, and it was like, um, they were trying to kill you off. No, it was worse. It was like a zoo. It was like feeding the animals at the zoo at, at feeding time. They would put this food in and they would, the reporters would run, they would run, they will do anything for free pizza and cheesecake. <laughs> and they, you'd have guys that, that like, you know, the guys who carry the cameras are always like big guys. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. And they're running at top speed to get that goddamn pizza. And it's, <laughs> it's dangerous. You know, it's, they're, they're swinging that camera around because they want that pizza. And the, the French guy was, was just absolutely appalled by this. Right. And he's like, you know, there, he's, he said, you know, there's more to life than cream and fat. <laughs> a, French no, no, guy, a French guy said that? <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised. He, he's extremely cynical about America. He's like, <laughs> I think that for a French, he probably just meant like there's more to life than American cream Yeah, and yeah, fat. exactly. No, he was looking at our food. He just like- But he, the French he, cream and he fat. Has, he, has, he has incredible contempt for American food. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, so I've actually been waiting a long time to do this interview because- uh, 
the, you have one of the review copies. I have one of the review copies, and I read this. Extremely rare. There's yeah. only five. There's five yeah. in existence. I think I had one, and you, and you didn't even have one at one point, no, right? I, 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 don't, I don't have one. Right. Yeah, exactly. And this is a terrific book. It's, on a, uh, it's about a subject. By the way, this is author Thomas Frank, who wrote, of course, What's the Matter with Kansas? Uh, and uh, this new book is called The People Know. And between uh, those two, listen liberal, which is very. And between important. those two, listen liberal, and this is a topic that that we all of us here have have a, a great interest in, which is uh, populism. And Tom, you take a very specific look at sort of the history of what you call anti-populist movements or anti-populist rhetoric. But for people who don't know, can you can you start? by explaining to what the sort of history, the broad history of the populist movement, particularly like in the 1890s and what it was based on and what it might have in common with some of the movements today. Oh yeah, and the term, and the term too. Yes, I will, the, I, yeah, I okay. absolutely the will. The history of the term, yeah, great. So that, because I, I love talking about that because I am sitting, I'm speaking to you from Kansas, mm-hmm. from, uh, from the house I grew up in, in Kansas City. And I am about 20 miles from where we think the word was coined. It was populist was a word that was deliberately made up by a bunch of guys on a train. They were riding from Kansas City to Topeka. The year was 1891. And they made up this word to describe adherence of a third party, a left wing third party movement that was just then cropping up. It was, uh, you know, a movement made up of farmers and workers, but mainly farmers. And the idea was to sort of, uh, well, sort of seriously uh, go after the um, monopoly capitalism of the 1890s, the sort of, you know, gilded age uh, railroad monopolies and the, you know, all powerful bankers and that kind of thing. And they, these forces had been crushing uh, farmers for years, um, you know, making, far, you know, ruining their livelihood and also ruining the livelihood of industrial workers. And they, these people finally said, let's get together and let's found, uh, let's start a party of working people of all different backgrounds coming together as uh, united by our class interest, and they were very open about saying this, united by our, our interest as workers against these, um, you know, the, the people on top, the Wall Street, you know, the robber barons. And uh, they had, at first, they had the shocking success uh, when this started, and they went into politics here in Kansas and were able to defeat the local Republican Party in an astonishing upset victory in the year 1890. And they called themselves the People's Party. And so they were, 1891, they, were, they, they, it start, they started organizing nationally. All these other people said, we want a piece of this. We want to do this in our state. And um, they deliberately came up with the word populist as a way of describing uh, their supporters because it comes from a Latin root populous meaning people. Anyhow, that's where the word comes from. The story of the People's Party, uh, it, it, it didn't last long. They uh, had a sort of uh, a moment of glory where they, uh, they were growing by leaps and bounds and, uh, you know, uh, contesting uh, with the other two main parties all over the Midwest and the South. Uh, they got on board with the William Jennings Bryan campaign in 1896. And when that got uh, absolutely destroyed. And I, we want to talk about that at some point, by the way. It's a fascinating story. Uh, populism died out soon afterwards. And there's, there's many, uh, it's, it's a movement that's been very much studied by American historians. Uh, it's extremely well known, lots of books written about it. You might want to know how come I know so much about it. And we'll talk about that too at some point. It is kind of a, a curious story. 
But the, what, what I do in this new book is to trace that populist tradition, by which I mean this genuine idea of uh, working people coming together out of class interest to reform the economic system uh, through American history. So in the 1930s, you see a very similar thing with the labor movement and the New Deal. In the 1960s, again, a very similar thing. And in our own time, you saw something like that with a guy like Bernie Sanders, who probably the only person in American politics who would actually get all the references that I just made. <laughs> we know exactly what I'm talking about. So the, the book is, is partly that story, but it's also the story of the people who hate and right. fear and despise populism. And in some ways, that's a much more interesting story because the story of, of left-wing, you know, working class movements in America is pretty well known, or it used to be. I, yeah. Although I'm discovering now as I talk to different people, nobody knows this story at all. But the, the story of anti-populism has never, never been told, which is these uh, reactions to working class movements that take this hysterical form you know, and always uh, deliberately misunderstanding working class movements as, uh, you know, the, these uprisings of, of the unwashed, these collections of lunatics, you know, these people who are in the grip of hypnosis or mental illness, uh, always understanding it that way. And that continues. There is a straight line from 1896 when you had this hysterical reaction to populism right up to the present. And people say the same things almost word for word yeah. today about what they call populism as people said about William Jennings Bryan in 1896. That's one thing I wanted to ask about. There's a, there's a point in the book where you, you mentioned a, uh, a Nation article uh, that was denouncing Bryan. And the, the quote is, no man has ever been elected president uh, whom the business interest distrust and deemed unsafe, have distrusted and deemed unsafe. And that Reminded me, frankly, of both rhetoric that was used against Bernie, but also against Trump in, in 2016, where for the first time you started to see articles that said out loud things like, you can't win without the business interests. Um, it's impossible for this person to get elected because this invisible primary class doesn't approve of these politicians. Yep. Um, and is, but that started back then with Brian. Oh, that's where, in some ways, we're back where we, we're back where we started. I mean, there's, there was, there was, you know, a, 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 about a 50 year interregnum in American life where, where, uh, where, where politicians who were not endorsed by big business did succeed, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, the classic, the classic case, but we are absolutely back to where we were in 1896. So when Brian was this, this amazing story, um, the, uh, you know, it looks like populism is on the rise in the 1890s. There's a depression in the economy. Uh, there's huge strikes, the Pullman strike, the Homestead strike. There's a first ever protest march on Washington organized by populists. And then the, uh, as often happens in American life, one of the two main parties moves to absorb this discontent. And in this case, it's the Democrats. They meet in their convention. They nominate this guy who nobody's ever heard of, William Jennings Bryan. He's 36 years old. Uh, he is, a, he, you know, he wants to do away with the gold standard. And he gives this like barn burner of a speech that we remember as the cross of gold speech where he denounces the gold standard. And the uh, Democrats nominate him. They're, you know, they're, they're bowled over by this guy. And they're like, this is the great leader. And they nominate him. A couple weeks later, the populists meet in their convention and they say, well, he's not 
perfect. He's not with us on all of our issues, but he's with us on this one big one. So let's let's get on board uh, with the you know the Brian train, and <laughs> and they did. They endorsed him too. And at that moment, the establishment of America, the the sort of uh, ruling class of America, went. Can I curse on, on this? Absolutely, order? yes. They, they we ab- encourage abs- it. They go absolutely apeshit, hysterical. <laughs> they go berserk. And at the time, and, they, and the, the, the quote that you, that you read from The Nation, and The Nation was uh, a very, well, we would today look at it and say an extremely conservative journal. I'm sure they didn't call themselves that at the time, but they were. And the, the entire upper class of America came together in, uh, in this hysterical reaction against Brian. So the, uh, the millionaire class, the tycoons, captains of industry, the uh, journalists, there was this complete consensus among newspapers in New York with like one or one or two exceptions, not just New York. It's the whole country. Uh, the, the, Literally uh, none, of, none of them endorsed Brian. Like, like uh, not one. One did. Oh, one, one did? did? Oh, yeah, yeah okay. William Randolph Hearst. Oh. Wow. <laughs> he, well, because he's a, you know, but that's a, that's a story for a different occasion. The nation, would, the nation was conservative even though it was abolitionists? I didn't know that. Back then, yes. Well, I mean, conservative in the sense that laissez-faire, that, that government had no role in the economy, should stay oh, out of the no economy idea. altogether. You know, farmers are going down so what? Let them go. Right. You know, uh, people are suffering. Who cares? That that's that. But that was that was an, an extremely normal opinion at the time. That was orthodoxy. There, I mean, nobody disagreed with that. So, all of the great academics of the period in the 1890s, the university, the nation did a poll of university presidents. They couldn't find a single one that supported Brian. All the society clergy, all the great you know Protestant preachers of the era, despised Brian, and. Um, they came together against him in the most extraordinary way. And the uh, Republican candidate, William McKinley, kind of a cipher. Uh, but he had this campaign manager who was incredible. His name was Mark Hanna. By the way, he's Carl Rove's hero. Do you know about this? No. <laughs> yes. Carl Rove has written a book about this campaign. Carl Rove is fascinated uh, by this period. But he's sort of on the other side than me. Anyhow. The, uh, sort Mark- of. <laughs> Mark Hanna was uh, was McKinley's campaign manager, and uh, he was this tycoon from Cleveland and, and a genius sort of political operative. And he proceeded to uh, raise and spend, by some ways of counting, more money than any presidential campaign has ever spent, if you adjust for inflation, uh, pop- growth of the economy, et cetera, GDP, that sort of thing, more than anybody has ever spent. He outspent Brian by, we don't know for sure because there's no, uh, you know, they didn't have to uh, report 20 or 30 to one. Brian had nothing. At one point, Mark Hanna went, this is true, went door to door to the headquarters of the great corporations in Manhattan and went into the CEO's office and would say, open the books. I'm here as, as William McKinley's representative, open the books. And they would do it. And he'd say, we're taking X percentage of your profits for last year for the Republican campaign. They, and they would do it. They wrote the check. Why'd they do that? Because they thought this was the class war. They thought that Brian was Robespierre. You know, here, here it comes. And we will do, they will do anything to put this guy down. And they succeeded. Here's Brian. You know, at first, it looks like he's unstoppable. You know, he's this great orator, man of destiny. And he's going around the country in day coaches he's doing a whistle stop tour but you know just in uh, he just buys tickets he has to sleep in the stations and stuff like that he's carrying his own suitcases 
<laughs> and they they just wipe him out. They uh you know they they it, every kind of of election day skullduggery known to the 19th century mind is used against him. This blizzard of pamphlets, uh, the political cartoons that I that I show in the book, which oh, are it, quite incredible. Oh, the one from Anyhow, the judge, they, or yeah, yeah, from Judge and from Puck, right. and. Um, and uh, if you go on my website, I've got a whole I've got even more of them. I've got a whole bunch of them up on tcfrank.com. Some of them are really vile. Uh, I mean, they used, you know, they, they all kinds of racist crap against him, all sorts of insane stuff. And uh, and they really um, they really did a number on him. But here's the important thing for our purposes is that they they built this stereotype of what Brianism was. And it's this kind of madness. It's the threat of the masses of these idiots, these yokels who don't have any business uh, in government trying to tell their betters what to do. And it was totally a case of the, uh, you know, of the, uh, the, the leaders of society, the leaders of business, uh, uh, you know, putting the riffraff back in their place and they were extremely open about this that that's what they were doing and the their single word that they used to describe this threat was populism this was the word they used and it it you know their usage of that word became the the way we use the word today without any reference to the actual populist movement or very little reference to it these are great these um these illustrations that you put in and they uh it, i mean a lot of them you could almost swap in for today but one of them is like you have uh william jennings bryant uh as a ragged immigrant anarchist assassin uh it says the horror of reform this is sorry i just is this your text gotta, over there is this hey, your text I, no, I the horror of reform or yes, is that... I, wrote, I wrote that. You can see their okay. text is just one word. The assassin. assassin. The assassin. Right, the assassin, yeah. And, and it and, has Lady Liberty he's, lying. He's, he's knifed Lady Liberty, yeah. and she lies bleeding on the steps of the U.S. Treasury building. And that's like yes. the very next week, the same magazine depicted him as Satan, which is on the next page. Right, yeah, Satan, yeah. And this and then, says, this says uh, he's a, uh, holding a sign that says, Down with the Courts. Yeah. So then because her, Brian objected to some Supreme Court ruling or other at the time, I, I'm blanking on which one. But and U.S. credit, her sash it says U.S. credit. Yeah, and he's de he's it. destroyed her, and he's got yeah. the knife of he's knifed her. It's bloody <laughs> repudiation. Yeah, it's so it's so literal. It's so great. But I want to ask you um, if we could kind of go back even further to uh, the the nomenclature or the the christening of the turn that you referred to, because uh, I thought it was really fascinating to see first of all uh, if i can quote some of what you wrote if that if that's okay uh you you talk about you quote the american nonconformist and kansas industrial liberator which is a radical newspaper um from kansas and they uh they write on may 28 1891 there must be some short and easy way of designating a member of the third party to say quote he is a member of the people's party and quote would take too much time henceforth the follower and affiliator of the people's party is a populist for a new party needs and deserves a new term it's too bad by the way they, they didn't apply that to their own the name of their own uh, their, their uh, publication but i guess to that, be fair, isn't that hilarious yeah, but they, yeah. Uh, you don't they, need that the same way a party so it, does it, I guess, the, yeah. the term kind of exploded i think they knew right away that they had a, a good word on their hands and there's right. another i didn't use this in the book but there was another newspaper from nearby a little town 
somewhere in Kansas um, that they, they did it with a big headline, the word, just the one word populist exclamation point. And then, you know, underneath they printed some, you know, folder all from the convention that they just had, but it was all about like, you know, we've got this new word. They were very proud of themselves. Yeah. Um, but they had no idea what, <laughs> what well, lay in wait. And now right. we use that word to, in the most outrageous, you know, apply it to Trump, apply it to Le Pen, right. you know. And then, and then you, you talk about, um, the Topeka Capitol, which is another yeah, uh, re re Republican existence today. Yeah. OK, so you, you then quote their description of it. And I guess they have a, a, a headline that says or an article that said third party Cincinnati rapidly filling up with the disgruntled ravelings of the old parties. Kansans to the fore in large numbers and making themselves ridiculously conspicuous by their garb. Hasty, gab. By their gab. gab their sorry, talk. by their gab. Sorry. Well, I said that because the next line. Sorry. By their gab. Hayseed in their hair. That's Kansas. a headline, by the way. Okay. Hayseed these are, yeah. in their hair. Hayseed in their isn't hair. That, isn't that amazing, the stuff they used to do? Yes. Can Kansas alliancers proclaim their politics by the uncouthness of their personal attire. That's probably they're, why I said they the are, garb they thing. Are, they are deplorables. They are deplorables, right? And... What, I, I just have a question. Um, the Kansas City Star, another newspaper, said that the convention where the populists had gathered bore a much closer resemblance to a mob than to a deliberative assembly. Um, and then also said the conference from beginning to end was distinguished for its intolerance and extreme bigotry. So I have a question about that. What were they referring to? Because this is something we see a lot, you know, uh, yeah. populism equals bigotry. Um, they meant it in a completely different way. They meant that the, the, that the leadership faction was really heavy handed and wouldn't, you know, and was sort of running the assembly however they want. You see that word thrown around a lot back then in it. With okay. a, but but they, they later meant it in the other way. Right, right. Exactly. Yes. So that's the big turning point. We'll, and I hope we we're going to talk about every single aspect. Yes. Of it. No, no, I, I just wanted to clarify because I think there's an important point here is that in that early period in the 1890s period, there was actually a moment where it looked like it was going to be a multiracial coalition as well. So let less people think right. that this actually was some kind of a bigoted movement. Could you talk a little bit about the black? Yeah, yeah. So that, yeah. there was there was a, a important element of the populist party that they called the that we historians today call the black populists because they were, you know, they're farmers in the South tended to be tenant, mostly tenant farmers. Well, they, one of the things that made populism uh, so shocking and so horrifying to the sort of ruling elite in the South and in the South, so Kansas was a one-party Republican state. The South, the Southern states were all one-party Democratic states. And the way the Democrats propped up their regime in the South after the Civil War was through white supremacy and this doctrine of what they called um, white solidarity, that your racial interest as a white person uh, over, overrode every other possible interest you could have. And the populace said, no, that's not the case. Your interest as farmers come first and uh, black farmers have the same mm. interests as white farmers. So if we get these two groups together, we can actually, you know, elect some people to Congress or to the legislature or whatever, and we can do some legislation and, and make changes for our lives. And this was, uh, this was there. I mean, this is again, well-known to historians, People have written and written and written about this. This was their um, appeal to uh, uh, white and black farmers in the South. Uh, that was their sort of official stand on what was then called the race question. Now, not all populists were racial liberals. In fact, 
racial liberals or anti-racist by today's standards were extremely rare in those days. But they did have this idea that your class interests would come first. And on those grounds, they reached out to black farmers. And they had some success. They had quite a bit of, they had enough success that they were, that they terrified the sort of, uh, what's called the Bourbon Democrats, the conservative Democrats who ran the South at the time. And they, uh, again, took all kinds of extreme measures to make sure that populists didn't win any elections down there. And this included uh, lynching, shooting people, intimidating people, uh, you know, uh, uh, paramilitary gangs. There was, uh, the story becomes quite horrible once you start digging into it, there was one Southern state where the populace did prevail. It was North Carolina. And they did it by um, what's called fusion with the local Republican Party, which was, uh, so blacks could still vote at this point in the 1890s. And uh, the populace fused with the local Republicans, who were uh, the party that most black people were still loyal to at the time. And they came together and won in North Carolina several times in a row and uh, did all sorts of things in the legislature that made it possible for black people to be elected to municipal offices and, and, and that, that sort of thing. And the um, Democrats went, again, absolutely apeshit, complete hysterical overreaction to this. Well, it's not an overreaction. They threatened their interests. Right, yeah. I mean, these, are the people who owned, these are the way, people who right? owned the South, you know, and uh, they deployed, in order to stop populism in North Carolina, it's very, again, a very famous or infamous episode. They deployed what's called the White Supremacy Campaign. This was in 1898. And they rolled out, I mean, the most outrageous campaign of, of uh, you know, of racism, you know, of like anti-black bigotry that you've ever seen. It was absolutely loathsome. Uh, brought in demagogues from all over the South, uh, you know, built up these paramilitary gangs to go around and terrorize people. And they did this, by the way, uh, all over the South, wherever populists had come out on top. There's another famous case study in Texas where they did the same thing. And uh, they beat them. They beat populism down and the local Republicans. And once they were done, uh, the Democrats uh, back in power disenfranchised black people. And they did this all over the South. This is where this is how disenfranchisement began. It was as in several southern states as a direct response to populism, in other southern states as a kind of delayed response. They said, well, somebody might try that again. You know, we've beaten them down, but, you know, who's to stop? What if they try it again? And so the idea was to, you know, never let something like this happen again. It's one of the ugliest chapters of American history, and it's very unpleasant uh, to research. And there's, I mean, there's very little, historians don't, like to write about it. But this is like the, the white supremacy campaign is really well known. It's a uh, horrible, anyhow. Were there right. lynchings of white populists too when you referred to lynchings or was it of black they, people? They tried, they, 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 they tried to. I, I actually don't know all the different people that they killed. They, they tried to lynch. A, um, so there is one particular case uh, in Wilmington, North Carolina, where the white mob actually overthrew an elected city government of Republicans and populists, uh, the uh, white Democrats. Uh, and they sh- they went into the black part of town and were just shooting people indiscriminately. Uh, it's it's a very famous. They called it a race riot at the time, but it was in fact just a white mob that came in and they and they removed the mayor, the chief of police, uh, a bunch of politicians, threatened them with lynching, uh, and the federal government did nothing. The state government by that time was controlled by the Democrats. They did nothing. And it, it, what can I say? It happened. It's a famous story, but uh, not many people know it anymore. 
So they, so they, they hold off through tactics like that and through all the ridicule and the unity of the, the industrialists and the press uh, against populism. They hold off the movement in the late 1800s. But then we have the Great Depression and it opens the door for Roosevelt. And, and is that, uh, it seems like for a period there, the anti-populist rhetoric doesn't work or yes. it's, it's power. No, no. Can you explain a little bit about what happens during that period? Because I think it's interesting. During the yeah, Roosevelt so the, years. The, thir- the 30s is, is, the, if, is sort of the high point of, of populism, at least in a cultural sense. And anybody who's seen a Frank Capra movie knows immediately what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Or an Orson Welles movie or any of that kind of... Uh, you know, the culture of the period, the, the plays that they would write, the poems. So my title is taken from a Carl Sandburg poem of that period called The People, Yes. And then, there's, and then there's, you know, and this is the labor movement is growing by leaps and bounds. This is the great heyday of the That's right. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. And, uh, and very, by the way, very transracial. It's the same idea, again, the transracial movement of working class people against um, uh, the sort of robber barons or monopoly capitalists or whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, the, our economic system. And then you have Roosevelt, uh, who is uh, sort of at the, the, you know, at the, at the apex of it all, using this very populist language in his speeches, uh, uh, referring to and quoting William Jennings Bryan all the time. And, um, you know, of course, it, th- this is the period where the American middle class is born. This is, this is how we became the America that, that, you and I grew up in, and that is right now vanishing before our eyes. But what really intrigued me was, I mean, this, that story of the 30s uh, is well known. You know, people, have, as I said, you watch any movie from that time and you get it immediately. Uh, what I didn't, what isn't less well known is the backlash against Roosevelt. So in 32, when he first ran, the country was deep in the depression and nobody knew what he was planning to do. Uh, it was not clear from his rhetoric. But by 1936, they knew, you know, he was, he had taken us off the gold standard. He had set up all these regulatory agencies. He was encouraging people to join unions. He was, he had raised income taxes on the rich. He had done, you know, he was, you know, he was using antitrust enforcement all over. I mean, it was, it was the end of the world for these people, for the sort of ruling class of America. And again, in 36, they came together in this kind of, uh, uh, gathering of the upper class tribes. And it's exactly what I described about 1896. So it's the rich tycoons, captains of industry, like the DuPont family, who act as the kind of Mark Hanna of the 1936 bank rolling the campaign against Roosevelt. But it's also economists, university professors. Um, it's, uh, and of course, the press. The press absolutely despised Roosevelt. Uh, and they came together in this incredible airtight unanimity against him in 1936, determined to do to him what their parents had done to Brian. And uh, I went back and looked up the material from it because you, you, you know that we all know that like the Chicago Tribune hated Roosevelt, but you never go back and actually read the, uh, the, the op-eds that they ran, the editorials that they ran, which are just, they're insane. And the cartoons depicting him as a Russian puppet, depicting him as, as a, like another Hitler. Wow. Depicting you, you know, oh, again. yeah. That's, well, you've got the book there, Katie. There's this cartoon that's so funny where it shows Roosevelt as a little boy. And he's, uh, his, it's the title oh, of it yeah. is The Red Jam of Moscow. Moscow and he's, yeah, got, he's got red all over his hands. Yeah. He's a useful idiot. <laughs> Anyhow, they, they did this. And the, the, the worst was um, 
this group that was bankrolled by the DuPont family and various other, you know, extremely wealthy billionaires of that period called the American Liberty League. And they're the first big right wing pressure group. Uh, like the like you know all the stuff we have today. Only they were much more in the open about it. They were proud. They would you know they were proud of the, they were you know bankrolled by Ameri the, you know the fixtures of society and all that sort of thing. And they <clears throat> you know they would constantly be broadcasting on the on radio and issuing these pamphlets. And so I went back and read the pamphlets. Oh my God, this stuff is unbelievable. The, I mean, they're trashing Roosevelt in every way imaginable, but the thing it's, they constantly come back to this theme of these people, you know, these Roosevelt supporters have no business trying to run society. These are the, you know, the absolute riffraff, the very bottom of society. How dare they try to tell us how to run the world? You know, they have, the, the, capitalism is in the hands of capitalists because that's who's supposed to, that's who's supposed to be running it. That's who God put in charge. You know, how dare these people do this? And again, there's a lot of racism mixed into this. So there's, they, they, they come back to eugenics. I was surprised by this. I, I'm not a big expert on the eugenics movement. And to see it deployed against Roosevelt again and again and again. And they also called him insane. They, uh, uh, did you see the quote in there from Carl Jung? Carl Jung actually, Carl Jung actually uh, observed Roosevelt giving a speech or something like this and came away from it and said, oh yeah, he's a total authoritarian. He's the, the Mussolini personality what? type. Yes. And, and the FDR Mussolini, had, had he actually seen Mussolini or heard him? That's like uh, ridiculous. It is ridiculous, but all of this is ridiculous. Right, it's all yeah. nonsense. The, but the, the best stuff was, or by which I mean the worst stuff, was these, uh, these guys who are saying, look, working class people are in the working class because their genes have, you know, that's, that's where, that's that's where, where they've been consigned. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Their, their biological destiny has carried them to that. And they can't go out and complain about that. That's just nature. It's, you know, the idea that they would get to uh, run our system via this mechanism known as democracy is just, it's absolutely nuts. You know, they can't do that. That cannot be permitted to happen. And they, they came back to this theme again and again and again, and it's, it's, it's fascist. And wow. there were, yeah. there were a lot of um, openly fascist uh, uh, people in America at that time, or, you know, maybe they weren't like in touch with the Nazis or anything, but they, uh, they were, you know, there were fascist gangs uh, who would go around breaking strikes and they were, you know. Right. But it didn't, it didn't succeed in getting exactly the wide sort of cultural, like hegemonic push until after World War II. Right. And I, I thought it, it, this, it totally failed. Right. It totally, and this was uh, uh, after it, after the 36 election. I mean, this is one of the greatest landslides of them all. Roosevelt crushes these people. And their campaign against him just completely crashes and burns. Uh, it turns out America, you know, is a real, it's a democracy. It's part of our culture. And, uh, and you, you can't tell people that they're on the bottom because, you know, that's they're, where they they're, they're def yeah, they're, they're genetic defectives or something. It's just, that's just, that's not a way to win elections. And uh, some guy did a study after the election was over and said, pointed out that in cities where, like back then cities would have more than one newspaper. And he said in cities where the, all the newspapers were 
denouncing Roosevelt. That's where Roosevelt got his greatest majorities. And so it was like, and Matt, this will, uh, this will ring a bell for you. It was a reaction against the monopoly power of the press. Yeah, exactly. Which we saw again a yeah. couple of years ago in this country. Right. People just hate being lectured at like that. They just hate being told what to do in this really, especially when it's a, you know, a society person who reminds them that they, that they, that they have to get in line because they are from the, you know, they're the from wrong the class. Order. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're, 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 you're a private, not a general. You're a corporal, not a colonel. Get back in line. And you know, that doesn't play well in this country. Right. What's also interesting is it it's is Roosevelt's success kind of undermines the claim that this is a an irrational kind of aesthetic movement, right? Because Roosevelt certainly was not a man of I mean, he politically was a man of the people, but he was himself um you know, a, basically part of a of a an elite class oh, of yeah, people. Uh, absolutely. And, and, but that didn't matter. And and I guess I bring that up because I think a lot of the anti-populist rhetoric um, tries to make this a purely cultural, emotional, aesthetic thing and not an ideological thing. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you know, and, and so and, he kind of that kind of under that contradicts that their fake thesis. Yes, but it's but you also have to remember uh, Roosevelt is is the leader, but it there's also a movement behind. Of course. It. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, a labor you movement should never and, forget yeah. that about the 1930s, that this was I mean, this country was in turmoil. You know, the labor movement, there were strikes all right. over the place all the time. Uh, you know, it looked like civilization was coming apart. And he was, you know, he was a great president and a great leader. And I love those speeches. And I love, by the way, writing this book. It's all online now. You can go back and listen to his speeches, and they've been, a lot of them have been transcribed incorrectly over the decades. Hmm. So I was, um, you know, it was a lot of fun writing this stuff. Uh, I just love listening to his voice. But anyhow, to fast forward slightly, so this book I take these slices from different periods. It's not meant as a complete, you know, uh, every last detail. That, that's what I wanted to ask about next. Is is this next? this next moment where the it's like the intellectual class of the, in the universities. And you, you have this line in the, in the book that I really like. It said in, uh, in short, and I think you're describing the post-war period in short, the highly educated learn to deplore working class movements uh, for their bigotry, their refusal of modernity, their borderline madness. So it was yeah. like this, this intellectualized, uh, Thing. Why, why was that argument suddenly more successful after the war? So this is, the, this is the fascinating moment in this story. And I'm sorry that it's taken us a no, half no, hour no. to no, get to it. No, but there's in yeah. some ways the most fascinating moment in, in the whole story. This is how the word flips. Because the definition we use today is like the opposite of what those guys in 1891 came up with. You know? mm -hmm. and, and so in writing this, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to persuade the world to come back to the pure populism of the 1890s. That's never going to happen. But the story of how the word got flipped on its head is absolutely fascinating. Why it got flipped, who flipped it, you know, and the, the sort of the, the whole, you know, what were they thinking when they did that? And, and the story is, uh, it, it starts in, about in the mid-1950s. You have a new generation of intellectuals coming up. And this is, as you guys know, this is the golden age of your sort of managerial, you know, um, professional class, uh, you know, triumph. The uh, university system in America is exploding in size. It's growing by leaps and bounds. All of a sudden, the great corporations are run by, um, instead of being run by tycoons, they're run by MBAs. 
you know, instead of being run by entrepreneurs or people who inherit them, it's, it's guys who went to Harvard Business School. Uh, all of a sudden, the government departments in Washington are all being run by guys with PhDs or people who are experts in, in management. Um, the Pentagon, you remember Robert McNamara, the whiz kids, you know, this is that great period where the, um, the professional class is coming into its own. They are a member of the elite. And in fact, they are the elite or they are, you know, they're sharing the, they're part of it. Let's just leave it at that. Can I interrupt you quickly just to, just yeah. for a second? No, it's, that group is expanding during this time though, isn't it? I mean, is that because yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it stops being so much of a hereditary situation and starts becoming more of a professionalized class yeah it's that's exactly what's happening this is it this is the meritocracy is in full effect um you know people coming out of colleges yes and the, the war so this yeah and the war and so this class is of people is growing by leaps and bounds mm -hmm. and uh there's a generation of intellectuals, the great thinkers of this period, they called themselves, a, well, I don't know if they called themselves, we called them uh, in, in, when I studied them, they're called the consensus intellectuals. You know, this is the consensus generation. And their idea was that uh, Americans all agreed on certain things and, and uh, there was no real dissent in American life. Nobody had ever really disagreed, nobody in all of American history ever really disagreed on the important things. In fact, that dissenting groups, that there's something wrong with them. Uh, dissent is dysfunction, that's sort of their motto. But the leader of this uh, bunch of intellectuals was a professor at Columbia called Richard Hofstadter, most, most famous historian of his day, probably most famous American historian ever. And uh, he wrote a book in 1955 called The Age of Reform, where he, it was a huge bestseller. Uh, he got the Pulitzer Prize. It was much celebrated. It's been described as the most uh, influential work of American history ever written. And he decided, and this was, by the way, he wrote many books on this subject, but he absolutely hated populism this movement back in the 1890s that we started with. He just hated it. And it was like his life's mission to destroy the reputation of populism. And he start, and it's the age of reform is his great sort of magnum opus doing that. And he looked back at populism and said exactly what the critics of Bryan had said in, the, in 1896. This is a movement of uh, ir irrational people. There's something mentally wrong with them. They are people who are on their way down and therefore they have what he called status anxiety. Uh, they're, he said they were anti-Semitic, uh, they were anti-progress, they were backward looking. Uh, a whole host of much more sort of uh, uh, psychological ways of putting this this critique from the 1890s on these they were they were anti-intellectual they were rejecting you know what the scholars of the day were telling them they had to do they were against the uh, the uh, the academic establishment and um, so I'm going to shorten the story quite a bit within five or ten years Hofstadter's uh, attack on populism was completely refuted so the American historical profession just uh, crushed this book of his crushed it i mean there's people wrote entire books like refuting single chapters of it <laughs> you know and I've, I've got a bunch of them here but like uh, you know they hofstetter said the populists were anti-immigrant right so this historian um went to the populist party in kansas and looked at like the, all the county chairmen and he's like no this guy's an immigrant from denmark this guy's an immigrant from ireland you know this guy's you know that's just clearly not true Somebody looked at his, when he said not just were the populists anti-Semitic, I mean, some of them were, 
but he said they were the main source of anti-Semitism in American life. And this was just flatly wrong. And, uh, and a historian wrote like article after article after article in academic journals disproving it. Uh, there's a guy, well, it doesn't matter. Anyhow, it was crushingly refuted. However, nobody knows that. His redefinition of populism, and he started to use it as a generic term uh, for all working class movements that are authoritarian, bigoted, backward looking, um, you know, the, the, that exhibited all these traits. He started using that word. His redefinition of the word totally caught on. And all of his friends in the, or his colleagues in the consensus, among the consensus intellectuals within uh, just a year or two were using the word populist in this way, often without even knowing what, what the word originally referred to. And some of them, I mean, some of these works are ridiculous. And I have a lot of fun in the book kicking them around. Like one of these guys said, you know, like uh, Joe McCarthy was a populist because he comes from Wisconsin, which is in the Midwest. <laughs> right. That's well, the proof. That's the proof. Right. Some some scholarship. You know, this is just it's yeah. trash. It's just right. Well, you mentioned in the book that Hofstetter was probably the only one who even read any of the materials. Actually. Yeah. 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 No, he knew what he knew what they actually were. The others were like uh, like like uh, Seymour Lipset. Like there's no inkling that he ha he used the word all the time. And in fact, you know, this is one of the guys who launches what we now call global populism studies. It's not clear that he knew what it actually was, what, who, like who coined the word and what it meant. But here's the, the, the summary of this. Hofstadter, why did it catch on when it was so you know, easily disproved? Why did it catch on? Because Hofstadter wasn't just writing a work of history. All you know, great works of history are about the present. And Hofstadter was writing a manifesto for his generation. This was a, a manifesto for his group of intellectuals rising up and taking control of American life, entering the elite. The, the, this was the new elite. And he wanted to describe, you know, he wanted to differentiate between old ideas of reform. How do you get reform? You build a mass movement of working class people. And then you, you march on Washington and you protest and you win elections and you do all the things that the populists did and that the, the, the Democrats did in the 1930s. That was the old model. And he said, no, 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 no. The real model, the true model, is that you get people like me you get my friends around a table in Washington, D.C., and we hammer it out among ourselves. And we come to a consensus among ourselves. And that is how you get reform. That is the correct model for reform. Not William Jennings Bryan, not any of that crap in the 20s and the 30s. No, it's me and my generation of, you know, of, uh, of friends. One of his... Um, one of the consensus guys that I quote, a guy called Edward Schills, who was at the University of Chicago, said, you have to have an affinity among the elites. That's what you have to have to deliver reform. Affinity among the elites. They all have to be friends. So the, the, one of the things that makes my, uh, my sort of farm, farmer friends here in Kansas really really angry is that Hofstetter said, you know, populism was a complete waste of time. They didn't get anything done, you know, uh, but you know who did? He says, the Farm Bureau. <laughs> are, you, are you guys familiar with the, the Farm Bureau is a lobby group in Washington, D.C. They're like very, very conservative. They sell farmers out all the time. They're, they're awful. But Hofstetter's like, no, that's the model, right? That's the model. You get these <laughs> lobbyists in D.C. and that's how you get, right? That's how you get reformed. So it's a it's a manifesto for for right. not just for a generation but for the idea of of rule by the professional class, and you can see the power of this. You can see why that cap that 
catches on. And so populism becomes the generic term for idiots who refuse rule by the professional class, right. idiots who right. object to this. So to, to fast forward to, to the present, because I think this, this clearly has enormous implications for our, the way we describe politics today. I mean, you, you and I both cover politics in the in the two, early 2000s. And yeah, the, uh, I was going to say, we used to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, there, there was always this idea that whenever a candidate kind of like rose above his or her station or, or, or um, was appealing to something other than, you know, inside play uh, politics, they would always use words like um, passions or emotions, you know, to describe the followers. It could be Ron Paul or yeah. Dennis Kucinich or whatever it was. It was a lot of the same kind of language. But then in, by 2016... It's, it's always irrational. It's always irrational, they're, they're always exactly. Defined, their demands are defined as, dismissed as irrational, always. Right, right. But then what, what happens, I mean, so it, it looked like in 2016 that there was just sort of this mass consensus on, and really in both parties, of this just sort of dissatisfaction with the professional class and the people were looking around for someone to support who wasn't a representative of, of that group. And it felt like that language was being applied in, in both directions. And I wondered what your take was on that. Oh, my God. So the 16 election is, uh, you know, is the breaking point. You know, mm. it's absolutely fascinating. You and I were both reporting on it, writing about it carefully at the time. And that is absolutely what was oh, happening. Yeah, you were they, one of the early people to, to predict. I'm so Trump. sorry to say, you know, yeah. yes, I, I, I was. And the um, all of this literature that you just described, Matt, and you know it's produced all the time it's all around us every day every day we read in the paper you have to um how we have to you know rigidly obey what the medical professionals tell us and we you know that's just an example i i tend to agree with that i i you know i take all the precautions and i follow the rules on that on the on the sort of uh, pandemic front but this is you hear this all the time and what this literature never takes into consideration is the problem of elite failure the failure of that class of people sitting around the big mahogany table in Washington, D.C. And their failures are spectacular. And we could just, we could spend the rest of, we could spend an hour now, like just, just telling each other stories about their, their screw ups and their failures. I mean, the financial crisis, you know, the, the, uh, uh, you know, all those guys at Goldman, Jesus Christ, Matt, this is your yeah, <laughs> yeah, five exactly. years here. This is all you wrote about. And then the way they were bailed out when there's this, you know, talk about affinity among the elites. Oh my God, was there ever the, you know, the elites in the, uh, in the administration come to the rescue of the elites on wall street. And then they all swap places and bail each other out. And, and, um, they, and they congratulate you, themselves for doing it through movies like Too Big to Fail, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> and you'd always hear, oh, the, ba you know, the, uh, the, the bailout money's been paid back, you know, nothing right. to see here, no problem at all. You know, nobody got punished, nobody got fired. <laughs> it, it just, it drives you crazy, but that's just the start of it. The Vietnam mm. War, the Iraq War, you go down right, the list. Totally, yeah. Someone just reminded me on, on Facebook, you know, the, the opioid crisis, the opioid epidemic, that was not ordinary people stealing pills from the drugstore that was doctors prescribing it to them and the pharmaceutical industry you know the very people who well slightly different group of people but the pharmaceutical industry that had such a big hand in designing obamacare you know and uh, or, or the my favorite example of elite failure the hillary clinton campaign mm -hmm. in 2016 this is just absolutely what a debacle yeah and these were these were the best and the brightest that she had advising her these were the smartest 
uh, the most able polit you know, political advisors in America. And they got beat by Steve Bannon, who had never managed a political campaign before. <laughs> they lost to the most unpopular presidential candidate of all time. It just like it's like it's staggering. And instead of acknowledging that now, this is where it's like. So then 16 happens, 16 happens. And the country goes into another hysterical period. And in some ways, it is an exact replay of what I described about, um, about 1896 and what I described about 1936. Exact, you know, there's this unanimity, airtight among the media, um, among, well, certain kinds of, of capitalists. In America now, the elites, there's two different sets of elites, so it's not exactly the same, but certainly among academics, um, this whole kind of opinion cartel, as I call them in Washington, D.C., coming together in airtight unanimity about what Trump is and what he represents and never acknowledging, you know, the, the, their own, the failures of their own, you know, friends, their own culpability in making this asshole possible. Right, exactly. In, in, right. Which is why you have so many Republicans on MSNBC. Right. And <laughs> it's bipartisan. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's like the air, yeah. you know, the, and, the and, class and we've of entered into this up. time. It's like, it's like, and I, it's probably going to end well for the Democrats, by the way. It looks like, I mean, there's yeah. no way in hell. Well, I mean, I should bite yeah. my tongue here. Who the hell knows what's going to happen as we all learned after right. 2016. But how can you bungle? A pandemic like this this idiot in the White House has done and get reelected uh, I, I don't see a way um, you know but uh, but anything is possible but yeah but the but the Democrats don't um, they you know well I I should stop criticizing them and and and, uh, and turn the floor back to you no but they, but so they, we can they criticize it, them it's it's <laughs> it, it was I mean we should talk about how to what an extent it's exactly the same language uh, that, yeah. that was used because with quiz. Trump, it's literally, you can go down, it's a checklist of everything that was said yes. in both 1896 and 1936. He's literally insane. They tried to do the 25th Amendment thing. Uh, his followers are you know, de de deplorable. He's a puppet of a foreign regime. Puppet of a, for of a foreign regime. Um, right, the, the lack the, of ex the, the, the war and expertise. Remember that when, yeah. you, when you have people well, that's, like Max, that's the big one. That's the big yeah. one. That they, that that uh, that that his supporters are are anti-intellectual and refuse the right. advice of, of rightful societies, rightful experts. And this has become one of the most annoying, you know, arguments of them all. Not because it's it's not true. A lot of them do, you know, hate experts and that sort of thing. What's annoying about it is a that they use the word populism to describe it, and b that they refuse to acknowledge that that people have good reasons to be right. angry at experts you know you look at those hearings uh, on capitol hill yesterday you know these all these uh, the, the executives at the big at the big tech companies those people completely got a pass during the obama years i mean nothing happened to them do you remember obama and zuckerberg do you remember what pals they were mm -hmm. uh, and and you know obama had so many opportunities to come down on those people and design a new uh, antitrust you know, uh, enforcement system for this modern age. And they, he did just the opposite. He brought them into the White House, like him and Eric Schmidt, you know, him and Zuckerberg. Um, the Hillary campaign, same deal. You know, it was basically all these Silicon Valley people transplanted into presidential politics. Instead of taking the, you know, they embraced these people. And now look, and now look, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't matter anymore because uh, uh, Biden's election is, is uh, it just seems uh, inevitable at this point. 
Uh, but good Lord, these people are, you know, it's all out in the open now. The public is absolutely furious at these people. So, so uh, in 2016, another thing I thought that was amazing is the, so By the way, they, you're the first one to pick up on that, that this is that the parallels between the other like democracy scares that I describe and this, mm -hmm. this present one are, are exact. Right. Uh, yeah. Nobody, nobody has noticed that yet. That's a, uh, uh, you're the first. I mean, is, is there anybody else in the, I mean, I, I mean, I, I know you were, you were absolutely the first to, to pick up on this years ago, but is anybody even talking about it? That's, that's an interesting question. No, because, because, because it's taboo to talk about Trump, Trump in any other way. That's the problem. In, in any way other than his, his, uh, you know, his bigotry and his, right. his, his, his incredible stupidity, both of which are correct, by the way, he is a right. Bigot. The, the biggest dunce I've ever seen in the White House. But it still excludes, what I thought was interesting is, is what you point out about how they, they refuse to see their own culpability in creating the situation, right? I mean, I remember it was like they were handing him one issue after another. And yes, it was pretty clear that he wasn't sincere or, or, and that he didn't have a great grasp of what he was talking about. But for instance, when he would talk about NATO and those other countries not paying their dues and why are we doing this and blah, blah, blah. And these, uh, remember the, the fighter planes that cost too much money? Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like we've, been, we've been talking about that in like in, in liberal land for decades. Right. And right. Here's, here's, and, this, here's this asshole Republican just stole our issue. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. Or, or, or the, tr the trade agreements is the one that got me. The AFL-CIO has been talking about that for decades. Right. And and the Democrats just treat them like a captured constituency. It's like, oh, that's such a nice it's so nice that you're upset about that. Yeah. That, you know, see you later. Vote. Oh, remember to vote for me. And here's Trump. And he he totally swipes that issue. Uh, and, uh, and and they had no, you know, you know, their response to that. Well, I wrote about that for The Guardian in about March of 2016. I said, um, you know, because uh, uh, I hadn't been following the campaign, and it, it was came as it, all I knew about Trump. You know, in reading the papers was uh, what a racist he was, mm -hmm. and uh, and I was uh, and I was like, wow, that's really scary. And then I went and watched a bunch of his, um, uh, you know, a bunch of his speeches on YouTube. That's all I did, and I was astonished to see that he talked about trade all the time. And, uh, you know, talked about deindustrialization and what, how these people's livelihoods have been ruined. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, this is, this is the AFL-CIO. They've been saying this forever. And he's totally stealing, you know, their issue. And yeah. I'll be damned. He did it. And remember, he would go to, like, these factories that were, uh, that were closing and stuff like, oh, my God. And uh, the Democrats, instead of doing anything about that, it, it's just we're in such a strange time where – it's it's like they didn't feel like they needed to respond to that or they i mean hillary had this very mealy-mouthed way of trying to get out of it saying oh you know i wasn't I'm, I'm not really supporting the tpp but of course she had helped negotiate it so it was it was not good she uh, smoked it but didn't inhale it basically <laughs> right that's uh, that's exact sir right and uh, and in some ways well in many ways this was the this was the the, the crash of this whole model for the Democratic Party that goes back to the uh, the early 1970s when they decided to remake themselves as the party of the professional elite, which is right. really really what they are today, and 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 if you look behind the surface, 
uh, if you look a little bit beneath the surface, that was that it is a kind of a class. Well, you know me, I think everything is about social class. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, that's just my, that's my stupid little, what did, what did they call it in the fifties? My unique sale selling proposition. I think, <laughs> I think everything is about class, you know, <laughs> but, but it's like that beneath the surface, there's this weird upside down class conflict of, of, uh, of, of, you know, blue collar people, mostly blue collar whites, uh, uh, against the professional elite, mainly right. professional, mainly professional whites. Right. And, uh, and it's, that was 2016. It was the, it was just the strangest thing in the world. But yeah. And, and, and it's he, not going to end by the way. It's not going to end with Trump's defeat. Well, that's what, that's what I wanted to ask about because he, he would do this thing where he, you're right. Like I, I, when I first started covering him, I didn't know really anything about him except for what I'd read. And I, I had this one, impression but he would basically just sort of read out a laundry list of things that everybody was complaining about these big issues and then he would do another thing that i thought was really interesting he would he would say he would basically predict for people that the press was going to ignore it right he would say i'm going to talk about all this stuff but you're not going to hear about this anywhere else right like uh because uh, they're, they're afraid to admit to you uh what everybody knows and you know, sure enough, the coverage would work out that way. And it was like, you know, it gave him credibility that he other, otherwise wouldn't have had and didn't deserve, really. Yeah, right? isn't, and, I didn't, that's, it, that's, that's a good point. I had not, I had not thought of that. But, and so the, the, I feel like they still haven't gotten to the point of realizing, of realizing that you got to at least answer. Yep. Well, this is the, this is the thing is that they, they don't want to realize that because that requires acknowledging what we talked about before, acknowledging right. all of these blunders and, and screw ups over the years. And they're not going to have to acknowledge it. Look, they get, they're off the hook. They, uh, they're, they're going to, this guy is, is going to go down like Herbert Hoover went down. It's, it's, it's going to be a, you know, he's going to be, well, the way it looks now, I should not. <laughs> I should. Right. But here's the thing. Even if Trump goes down and Biden comes back in and Biden is basically, I mean, he, advertising status quo ante we're going to go right back to where we were that's basically the that's the message and there's going to be a new trump and the new trump is not going to be as big of of a, of a racist and a fool uh, you know the new trump is going to be a good politician who knows that you don't just turn away i mean trump needlessly antagonized lots of people who would vote for him with his stupid bigotry you know mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and with his with his dumbness and the, i mean all the idiotic things well you get a guy like ted cruz in there He's a very smart politician, uh, and he's not going to make those mistakes. He's not going to do stupid things like that. The next Trump is not going to be a fool, and the next Trump is going to, you know, it's it's. This is not going to end, is what I'm saying. This is not going to end, and they are in fact, Trumpism is a real powerful hand. Now you know, uh, Matt and Katie, I've been writing about this for a long time. This is what's the matter with Kansas. This is the sort of story of my life that I've been writing about for years and years and years. Um, you know, this sort of Republican fake populism. And I've said, and I've said it again and again and again, there's only one way to beat it. And that is you have to reach out to those, uh, you know, the disaffected voters and, you know, with your own appeal. And the, the democratic appeal to those voters is incredibly obvious. It's populism. It's incredibly obvious, uh, you know, they won't do it. Right. Well, that's, that's the next question is what happened with, the Bernie movement, because again, it's the same language yeah. with Bernie. Bernie was also an agent of a foreign power. He yeah. was, his followers were also bigots. Uh, they were also unqualified. 
right? Uh, was, made, was he insane? Was he described as insane? They, they never, I don't think they ever got to insane with him. They, they, they must have missed well, that one, Trump right? himself calls him Crazy Bernie. Crazy Bernie, that's right. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. Trump, Trump did that part of it. But they definitely went for the whole, you know, this, this person doesn't know how to do the math, right? He, yep. You know, it's yep. pie in the sky programs. Like, he's, he's not the kind of person who, who we can have in charge of these big, important bureaucracies because he doesn't know, doesn't he know doesn't how know the, the machine right. works. He doesn't, he doesn't know the science. Right. Yeah, exactly. So they, but they did manage to quell that. But is there, a, is there a future where some, somebody clues in, uh, I, to rephrase the question, is the only reason that they, that they remain ascendant is because those two versions of populism have been split uh, successfully. Uh, be, like if somebody were to come along and figure out a way to broaden the appeal a little bit, uh, on either side, uh, would, could it could it be effective? Could it? Absolutely. So my my feeling is that you know something like the Roosevelt Coalition, if you put it together, is unstoppable to this mm-hmm. day. But you to do that, you need like I say, like I, and this is at the beginning of the answer. Here we go. You ready? Mm-hmm. To do that, you need a movement. To have a movement, you the Democrats have to come out and support organized labor, and they have to make it possible to organize in this country again. And you and I both know they don't want to do that, and they've had many opportunities going back to Jimmy Carter to do that, and they refuse to do it. And they've allowed the beatdown to over the years to take place, beginning with Reagan, and you know to the point today where labor is something like six percent of the private sector work workforce it's you know they're they're a, they're they're basically they are of no significance in in american life or very little significance anymore and it's 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 completely tragic and the democrats allowed that to happen they allowed their own social movement to get destroyed the republicans don't make that mistake by the way they mm-hmm. they are they take very good care of the social movements that back them you know really backwards actually i i want to continue talking about my book but this is the sort of fascinating speculation about the future. Let's just assume that things continue going as they are. And the Democrats double down and they become double down. I hate that cliche. Continue (laughs) continue along the same trajectory and become more and more and more the party of the educated elite, you know, and the Republicans become, you know, continue to become what they are. And they are more and more and more the party of mm, capitalist Koch brothers, that type. And the rest of us are just, you know, we just get to fit in wherever we want. I mean, where do we go? There is no party for us. Right. <laughs> yeah. But no, isn't that's... your thesis that it's not that the Dems let this happen and were duped and didn't know how to hold on to this stuff, but that they wanted that? I mean, that's the thesis in part of well, they, they listen actively, liberal. Yes, right? exactly. And I repeat it with more detail yeah. in this one. They, they actively turned against right working class issues and and working class people in the late 60s and early 70s this is kind of the alarming part of the book y'all remember the last scene in easy rider remember oh yes you do come on they're riding along on their motorcycles they're in louisiana or something you what i know i know okay well i I haven't seen that movie in a while i I have seen a long time ago I'm I thought actually, when it came I think out, I'm better. I think I'm better off than Matt because I uh, never saw it. So my you never saw forgot, Easy Rider. Yeah, but but Matt forgot it. So I'm okay, actually, I didn't. I'm I didn't really see it when it came out, but I saw it when I was like um, ten. They showed it on TV, and you know it was a big, big deal. But you have to first go back to that movie version of The Grapes of Wrath, starring mm-hmm. 
Henry Fonda, Fonda. Peter mm. Fonda's dad. And it ends with the Jodes. Remember the, the, yeah. the people from Oklahoma, the migrant workers, the tenant That's farmers, and they're find. driving yeah. along in their crappy little truck. And Ma Jode says, and this is the great, you know, classic line of 30s populism, we're the people. We keep on a coming. Yeah. Movie ends. Okay, they're in their shitty little truck. Okay, Easy Rider, made by Peter Fonda, Henry's son, and it's often regarded as a generational, you know, a generational uh, uh, slapback. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's the it's the comeback at at, uh, at the Grapes of Wrath. They're going the other direction across the country. They you know drive through Oklahoma, the same scenery basically. They're in Louisiana somewhere, driving along on their motorcycles. They've got the, the awesome choppers, you know, the and the Steppenwolf soundtrack, you know, all that stuff. Mm. And uh, they're just driving along in this these two basically uh rednecks i mean it's a they're total stereotypes uh driving along in a pickup truck going the other way for no reason at all pull out a shotgun and kill them <laughs> and right. it's right. it's the inversion of it's the inversion it's the direct inversion of the end of the grapes of wrath and that was the attitude in the late 60s that the white working class were the uh were the foes now they were the problem this was the people that you had to, we basically had to do something about them and you go back and look at the countercultural classics like the greening of america it was all this literature and this is the archie bunker stereotype comes up at the same time it's all uh, this incredible stereotype gets built in the late 60s early 70s about like uh that you know union members are the biggest problem in our society and the democratic party turns away from them and says now we we are and they this is conscious they talked about it all the time they wrote books about it we have to become the party of highly educated kids coming off the campus in other words the professional you know proto professional class yes indeed and this is uh, this is where all that begins and they have never looked back they have never turned back from that from that moment the thing that's so uh, frustrating and dangerous i think about the the anti populists is that they claim to be the rational experts with no ideology. And yeah. They're, they're just calling bot, what is it? Technocrats. The technocrats. Yeah. And can I, can um, I just throw, throw in yeah. there that's a, you know, this is, the, they, they've been claiming that since the 1950s, of course, but meritocracy is an ideology. Right, of course it, it is. It is an ideology. Right. It's, you know, it's like, it's like, a, it, like any class, you know, any way that a, a social class explains its, 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 you know that it is why it's the rightful ruling class that's an ideology yeah of and that's, course, that's yeah. what meritocracy is and, and they have it in spades they're and, you know and it's supposed to be fair that's the thing yeah, right? well hey hey to be fair. they they, they and, let you take the sat didn't they right yeah and everyone has a, has a shot everyone should have a shot so last question for me the way that you, you mentioned in the book that martin luther king ran into some issues later in his life when he started talking about class issues working right. class issues imperialism and, yeah and um you know i wonder about that idea of keeping race and class separate as a strategy uh for this sort of uh this sort of professional managerial uh political class uh, is that something that's oh, still yeah. powerful and, and, and are we still seeing that? Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, I'll, I would just say, look at what's happening now. So you take something like Black Lives Matter, which has a huge potential 
to uh, blow up into a real populist movement because, you know, you're talking about people who are a lot of, you I mean, there's like 15% unemployment now, mm-hmm. you know, you're talking about people who have a real, in addition to their grievance against the police, you know, getting mistreated and beaten up and even killed uh, and getting thrown in prison for long stretches for like tiny, stupid offenses that didn't hurt anyone. Um, these are also people who are uh, in a lot of ways are, are, are victims of this latest downturn. And uh, yeah, hell yes, this could turn into something, you know, a real economic protest movement, a a whole, you know, a widespread protest movement. And just look at the way every corporation in America is trying to keep that from happening, trying to grab hold of this thing and and steal its righteousness. By the way, which they also did with Martin Luther King once he was dead. All Mm. of these corporations, you know, tried to use his image and his words. Uh, you know, to yeah. uh, to uh, to burnish their own image. This is a standard tactic, uh, and you know what King was trying to do. And there are others who are still, of course, still trying to do this. Was to build a economic protest movement that that united uh, blacks and whites and everybody else, for that matter. And uh, it was sort of, in some ways, it was it was like the original populism. He King, in, by the way, in the, there's this very interesting moment in the book where King does a shout out to the original populists and goes on at some length talking about what populism was and why it was a great thing. And, uh, uh, it, you know, in, in, in the 1960s, uh, instead of it being, you know, like white farmers being the leaders, it's, it's black civil rights protesters who are the leaders. But in other ways, it's very, very similar. And something like that could happen in our time. I would love to see it happen. But uh, like you just said, I mean, there or like I just said, there's all kinds of, of people pushing the other way right uh, and we're gonna we're gonna see but i don't know how you in a situation like this uh protest an economic real economic protest movement could easily catch fire it could you know right right but it, it, it's always suspicious when you see all these gigantic corporations leaning into uh, uh what right, right. Uh, you know superficially yep. at least is a you know is a is a anti-authoritarian yep. movement there's something going on there oh and, and there's uh, this, yeah. this whole idea to like, co-opt it right so you know I, i've got a lot of friends in the in the in the labor movement and they're you know the sort of in their long history in in this movement is uh protecting workers from the racism of bosses mm. you know this is a like this is what labor, a lot of what labor law is all about is like keeping people from getting fired for racist reasons and that's unions do this this is one of the things that they do and now it's all the other way around it's like all of these corporate types are going to instruct the workers on you know how to be good citizens and how to be nice and you know they they're totally trying to steal the weapons that have been uh, used against them Mm. Uh, it's really, really an upside down time that we're going through. And it's all possible because this pandemic has um, restricted the voices that are that are out there. So there's this very, I mean, you thought it was uh, narrow, you know, the, the range of voices in 2016. It's like now it's down to, you know, right. You, yeah. you either have this one opinion or you're out. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, Tom, thanks. Thanks so Thank much for coming so much. on. Yeah, this is great. Uh, the book is great. We're going to encourage book, yeah. uh, In fact, in fact, we're going to physically punish anyone who doesn't buy yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so uh, if you haven't know. bought it yet. Uh, oh, one you know. last thing. If you go to my website, the, the illustrations, yes. uh, there's a whole gallery of the so illustrations good, yeah. on tcfrank.com. And some of them are just outrageous. Yeah. Uh, well, you'll see when you go. Say, so say yes to the people know. 
<laughs> excellent okay. excellent tom thank you thank so much you. and we'll uh we'll we'll talk to you again soon we hope you got yes, it the pleasure is all mine well i learned so much from that no and everybody should go buy the book because it really is good and he spent a long i think I, it, it's a, an example of something something that happens with writing books sometimes where i think he he started it off probably I and mean, we didn't ask him this <laughs> But he started it That's off. That's conjecture, I, yeah. Uh, and it probably intending to just do a history of the populist movement. And it turned into something that was really very much about this anti-populist thing. Right. That he maybe discovered, you know, was a running theme from his research. So We should but, do this. We should do our theory. Like, well, what happened was he probably woke up one day. Yeah saw the word populist, circled it, said, by gosh, I'm going to write about this. <laughs> See, I don't know this for sure, but I think what happened was he was watching The Wizard of Oz and he realized that book really needs to be explained and that movie. Wouldn't that be funny? We come up with these like, well, he didn't tell us this, but I have a hunch. But I suspect what really happened was now we're going to have to get a quote from him and find out if it's if it's true or not. And yeah. we can't cut it out no matter what. We're just going to have to. We're just going to have to go with it. All right. Uh, thanks very much. Thank you. And don't watch the X-Files. Don't the watch X-Files the, or, or don't wa- or don't listen, even don't even listen to the X-Files. Um, right. I don't care about the X-Files. Do what you want. And um, definitely don't listen to Pod Save America. Uh, all right. Excellent. Uh, thanks for hanging in. Uh, don't watch any of those other shows. No. Uh, do rate and review us. And, oh, um, merch, merch, merch. Look at this. I finally merch. got mine. Oh, that's See my, great. My mug. Matt, you should be getting yours cool. soon. Yes, absolutely. I should. See you next week. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>